0: Yay! All right, if I can have your attention. As you know, we're studying the book of 2 Corinthians, and this is our fifth lesson out of a 10-week series, so number five, and I hope everybody's getting their emails uh, so you have your questions, and I'm sure everyone here has uh, looked at and answered all the questions this week, so I'm going to go around and ask questions since you've already done them. No. I actually did that one time years ago, and the next week there wasn't anybody that came. so <laughs> I had to stop that. All right, today's lesson in uh, 2 Corinthians 4 is about paradoxes, the paradox of the Christian ministry. And so, in our movie clip today, you'll see that Jerry makes a reservation, which reserves nothing—an apparent paradox. Uh, paradoxes. The Bible is full of paradoxes, and Jesus taught constantly, and gave paradoxical statements. So I looked up in the dictionary uh, what the definition in Merriam's Webster's dictionary. It's a self-contradictory declaration that is, in fact, true, like, like these they had in there. We're all unique, just like everyone else. <laughs> the third hand on a watch is called the second hand. If a word is misspelled in the dictionary, how would you know? There is no such thing as a whack, yet the world is out of whack. Fat chance and slim chance mean the same thing. Expecting the unexpected makes the unexpected expected. A wise man and a wise guy are opposites. If all the world is a stage, where's the audience sitting? <laughs> I at least got one guy that likes them. <laughs> He's a plant, by the way, anyway. <laughs> Love is blind, but lingerie is popular. There, now you're getting <laughs> and so then you you know closer related is are oxymorons. You've you've heard of a whole bunch of those, like free gift, uh, metal woods and golf, crash landing, uh, detailed summary, anarchy rules, jumbo shrimp, and on and on. Uh, so these are things that are actual, but they seem to be contradictory. Uh, And you have to uh, be careful what the way you say things is the way you say things makes a big difference. I saw this joke. A son had proposed to his girlfriend using the advice of his father that he gave him. His father told him what to say, but he was turned down. And his dad said, well, didn't you tell her what I said? When you look her in the eyes, time stands still. And he "Well." close to that I said something like that I said dear your face would stop a clock <laughs> so that didn't go over and of course the biblical paradoxes is just, just to name, there's a name there's a lot of them but I, I grabbed a handful James 4.10 exaltation through humility you're exalted by being humble 2 Corinthians 12, strength through weakness. Acts 20, 35, receiving through giving. Romans 6, freedom through servitude. Philippians 3, gaining through losing. John 12, living by dying. Matthew 10, finding by losing. It's all the way through the New Testament especially. And Jesus in his teaching in the Gospels of Matthew, whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. The last will be first, and the first shall be last. The kingdom of God belongs to children. Let the dead bury the dead, but you follow me. Remember that? The guy said, I can't follow you because you know, I've got to wait for my parents to die so I can take over the estate. <laughs> and Jesus was basically saying, let the spiritually dead go ahead and die, but you need to be paying attention to the spiritually alive so uh, some others that I found John 13 uh, 3 knowing that God had given all things all power into Jesus's hands Jesus washed the disciples feet there in John 13 the upper room Isn't that amazing talk about a paradox we're told that Jesus has uh, omnipotent power and God's given him everything and he has the right to everything And with that power and that right, he washed their feet. The job of the lowliest servant. Then other biblical paradoxes. Foolishness brings wisdom. Weakness brings strength. Trouble brings joy. To live is to die. To die is to live. We're all in need, but we are provided for. Poverty brings riches. Servitude brings greatness. Baffling, right? (laughs) When you think through every one of those, you go, wow, that's amazing. Why is the Bible so full of these things? Well, one of the key issues in the Bible is this, that God brings goodness out of evil. Or he he elevates or brings something wonderful out of what the world deflates, has a tendency to drive down and deflate. Or put another way, all evil ends up working for good for those who love the Lord. You've heard that passage. The great example of this is found in all the biblical New Testament stories. And I wanted to just show you one of the stories of how God does that. How how does that work? Because normally the world tells you there can't be a God because of all the evil in the world. All the evil and the violence and the corruption and the depravity in the world. That means there can't be a loving God. But look at the story in Acts 16. If you have your Bible, or your electronic device, please turn to Acts 16 with me and look at the story. Uh, Paul and his disciples have traveled across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia up there just north of Greece. And they've come into the area of Philippi and they preach the gospel. And all these ladies have come to Christ and he has this wonderful ministry. He's the first one to come into Macedonia and Greece and share the gospel. They've never heard it before. And there's this great reaction. And these men have this fortune teller that they're making a lot of money off of. And Paul converts her. So they lose their cash cow, you might say. And they're all upset, and so they get him arrested. And so if you pick it up in verse 19, When her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. They're innocent. They're doing good. They're doing God's business. But they get grabbed up and put in jail. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion. And they're Jews. And they're proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or deserve among the Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrate uh, they tore their robes in anger and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Now this is like you know those big rods that had a whip and like a whip and just tear the skin off of you, and they beaten beat them really bad, inflicted many blows, and then verse 24. My worst nightmare, you ever seen those stocks that had the holes in them and they stick your head and the hands in there? You'd have to go to a chiropractor for the rest of your life if you spent, you know, any time at all in there. They put them in the stocks. And then there they are in the prison, in the stocks. You would think they're pretty secure, right? And what, how, This is the worst thing ever. How could any good come out of this? What is God thinking? Well, look what happens. Suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. All the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep, now he's going to be really upset because in their their, uh, law, if you're a jailer and people escaped, they then put you in jail. (laughs) You got to take their place. And so the jailer was terrified, and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. That's how bad his reaction was, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, we're all here. Isn't that wild? Even though the doors are open and the chains fall off and the stock comes undone, Paul and his companions just stayed there. And he called for lights, so they brought the lights to see that the people were there. And trembling in fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' He was so impressed by these guys, by Paul and his companions. And he says, "'Tell me this message that you've been out preaching. "'What must I do to be saved?' And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord, the gospel, to them together with all who were in the house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately the jailer and his family were all baptized and became believers. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Because what we thought was evil, what they probably thought was they were perplexed. Why would God allow this to happen? Ends up converting the jailer and his entire family. And you end up with this huge, thriving church in Philippi. God brings good out of evil. They meant it for good. They beat them with rods. They threw them in the jail. They were mad at them. They meant it for their harm. But God somehow brought good out of the evil. And that's what the Bible's talking about. God can accomplish what we cannot, and he can use whatever happens in this fallen world to actually bring about what's good. Paul said in Romans eighteen uh, verse eight Romans eight eighteen, he said he's talking about his sufferings, and he had a lot, and Paul said, Well, here's my perspective. Our suffering now is not worthy to be compared to the glory that God's going to show us in the resurrection. So he was able to look past his present situation and into what God had promised in the future. And that's where his focus, that's where his perspective was, that's where his hope was. And what God was going to do and so he was motivated to serve God now based on what God was going to give him in the future and of course the ultimate evil the greatest suffering the greatest injustice that ever occurred was the arrest, trial and crucifixion of Christ Jesus he was completely innocent but what did God do? the worst thing that ever happened, the worst tragedy, God caused the greatest good to come from it. Think of that. The worst thing that ever happened ends up in God's economy as being the greatest thing that ever happened. Because of what Jesus did, because he was crucified, because of his suffering, the redemption of mankind, our salvation, our eternal life was made possible by what Jesus did on the cross. The suffering that he went through ended up in the greatest good of our salvation. Pretty awesome. And so, yeah, the Bible has paradoxes, seeming paradoxes, because we live in a world that's fallen, and so when God is God's program seems impossible, seems alien, it can't happen. But it is, and the Bible is teaching it. The distinguishing feature of Jesus' ministry, of course, was his humiliation, his suffering, and his sacrifice. And that's what he's asking us to do, to be humble, to put up with suffering now for the glory later, and to sacrifice our agenda for his, just as Christ did. And in doing so, Jesus had the greatest impact on the world as any man that ever lived and his disciples were handed after he died, his disciples Peter and John and Paul and James all those guys were handed the baton and had the same cup to to, to drink the same stewardship of taking the precious holy good news of the gospel to the world even though it involved Giving up their lives, their so-called life, and their agenda, and all their stuff. Remember the story when they were at their fishing boat? They had this great fishing business. And when Jesus called them, they left everything. They just walked away. You know, they gave it all up. And you'd say, wow, that's, they sure gave up all their stuff. What a sacrifice but actually it ends up in a bonanza for them, right? And all that they did, they changed the world. So in their life, as they went about to do this great work of God, they experienced a humiliating life of service and hardship, but they changed the world. For Paul, it was a simultaneous experience of his own Incapacity. We see that in today's lesson, he says, "I'm not, I'm not adequate for any of these things, but God is adequate to do it through me." So Paul faced death every day, as well as rejection, pain, and suffering. But in some sense, he was invincible. They're, they couldn't do anything with him. How so? In today's lesson, he says, I, "They have. I was afflicted." But I wasn't wiped out. I was perplexed and I I had no idea what was going on or how it was going to end. But I never gave up. And it always worked out. I was persecuted but not abandoned or forsaken by God. And I was struck down, beaten down, stoned and left for dead. But I wasn't knocked out. I persevered through that and I trusted God all the way. so how how bad was Paul's affliction what did he actually go through you know saying that and actually knowing the history of it in second Corinthians 11 we'll get to this in a few weeks but just a a short version of it Paul said uh, what's been happening with me for the last 10 years well I've been constantly imprisoned, I've been beaten times without number, always in danger of death, five times I received 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, stoned and left for dead, three times shipwrecked in dangers of every kind, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, daily pressure and concern for the churches, threats of my life wherever I went, on death row, and on and on and on. Yet he was fired up, he was excited, he was rejoicing because he knew God's program was being kept and people were coming to Christ and churches were planted and the world was changing. So his ministry was sacrificial, but it was fruitful. He was faithful, he had the hope, and he worshiped God in spite of, and had rejoiced in what God was doing in spite of his circumstances. So let's look at the text. Go back to uh, 2 Corinthians. Last week, we saw, he he asked the question, who's adequate to do this kind of stuff? Who is adequate to go into these places with this, these hostile authorities, who's adequate to be arrested, face beatings and, and everything they did to him, and still continue to go? And who's adequate to convert people to Christ? Who's adequate to deliver this message of salvation? And he says, I'm not adequate. It, none of us are. And then he compared himself, he explained what was going on by using the analogy of a common earthen vessel, a clay pot. Very inexpensive, cheap, plain looking. And yet it contained a treasure. And it's it's a great uh, metaphor because our bodies are basically made of the exact same elements as moist dirt you know the clay that he was speaking of but God's spirit has indwelt us and enabled empowered us to share the gospel such that people will believe in Christ and so Paul knew his weakness he probably cried every night you know I know I would in that kind of pain In those kind of situations but then he saw incredible things happen like the jailer and his whole family come to christ i mean that would be mind-blowing wouldn't it and that's what he's talking about he's like you know i'm nothing and jesus is the power of christ is everything and i see that on a daily basis who am i to break out of you know have the doors of the prison come open That's got nothing to do with me. And all I did was just tell him the truth. And he believed the truth. He believed the message. The power was in the message of the gospel. And so he ends uh, last week in chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure. God has given this treasure. He's put this treasure in us. The truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in this earthen vessel. We're nothing, but the treasure is everything. Jesus told the parable about how important the gospel is, how important the kingdom of God is. He says it's like a man who was a real estate developer. And he had all this land and buildings and apartments. But one day he found a piece of land With a treasure that was so valuable he sold everything else to buy that to have that treasure such as the kingdom of God it's more valuable than anything we had this treasure in earthen vessels and why did God do it that way he could have done it a lot of different ways I mean if I was him I wouldn't waste my time with this bunch here You're not much to look at. I'm kidding. I don't mean it. But why would God do it that way? Why would he give us the honor and the blessing to use us to share the gospel around the world, send out missionaries? Why would it all depend on us seemingly? That's God's program. And look what happens, the result of it, at the end of verse 7. He does it that way, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. So as we see these incredible things happen, see God do these amazing things, you know it wasn't me, you know it wasn't us. It's clear that God has done this, and you're blown away. I've seen this happen on missionary trips, mission trips. I'm sure if you've been on many trips to third world countries especially, you go in there and you're kind of, you don't know what to say, you're nervous. They kind of told you, but you still go in there. Like a lot of you probably been to Cuba, maybe India, China. uh, And you go in there, you go, now what am I supposed to do? How will I know what to say? And somehow you blunder through it. And these incredible things happen. People believe, you know, <laughs> in Christ, and they suddenly their countenance changes. I'll never forget in Cuba, all the different times I'd go into these people's houses, and it's basically just a mud hut, no electricity. And you're sitting on a home, uh, handmade stool, talking to these people, and there's you know flies all over you, and you're going, I'm sitting in a mud hut in a third world country with flies all over me. What am I doing here? You know, but you're kind of reciting the gospel as you know it. And these people whose countenance when you walked in is kind of like that. They hear the truth and suddenly their lives just light up and they get excited. And they're fired up by the time you leave. They're practically Dancing. And you're just blown away by it. Am I to walk out saying, "I was pretty smart to come here"? <laughs> and they obviously admired my good looks and my charm. <laughs> no, you walk out completely humble, and you go, "I cannot believe God did that. That was so awesome. You know, it blows your mind. You think." I'm going to see that guy in heaven, you know, someday. So it's wild, you know? And that's what Paul's talking about. This is how God reveals that it's all about Him. He, he lets us feel and suffer through all these weaknesses that we have in order to experience His great power and glory and have it on display a great treasure. And so he goes on in, in verse 8, four parallel, four, four parallel paradoxes in verse 8 and 9 that illustrate the truth of Paul's statement in verse 7. So he's saying, okay, that's the statement. Now let me tell you what that's like, what it feels like and how it happens in verse 8 and 9. Four parallel paradoxes. We are, as we go about doing this, We are afflicted in every way. They're after us all the time. There's no let up to to all the people that are against us. Everywhere we go, we meet antagonists, rejectors, and many are even hostile. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're not finished off. It's bothersome, but it doesn't wipe us out. And as this is going on, we're perplexed. You can't help but wonder. I can't believe we came here to do God's business, to share his word, and we just got beaten with rods, and I'm in these stocks. (laughs) Can you imagine? Yeah, I'd be perplexed. Perplexed, but not despairing. In other words, I, I wondered what was going on, but I didn't give up hope. I didn't go into despair and just say I quit. Verse 9, persecuted, persecuted, you know, physically and mentally harassed on a constant basis but not forsaken. In spite of the way people treated us, God did not forsake us, did not give up on us. He was always with us. That's something, isn't it? When you're going through your worst trouble and your worst pain, when things are the worst and most difficult, it looks like you've got problems that are unsolvable. God is with you. All through the Bible, uh, all the Bible characters and all the Bible stories God tells that. I first saw that, and I was studying, you know, Moses in Exodus 3, and Moses says, why will they believe me? He says, go tell Pharaoh, go tell the Israel that you're going to leave here, that let my people go. And he says, why would they listen to me? Why, how, how, why would they believe me? Why is this going to be successful? And God says simply, because I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And you know the story, it took like 10 different major miracles to finally get them out of there. So perplexed, he was probably on about the fifth or sixth one going, how long is this going to go on? And God said simply, I'll be with you. And so I said, I wonder if he said that to any of the other Bible characters. So I looked at, literally went through, you know, going all the way back to Um, Adam and Eve and Abel and all the different godly men and women and he said that to every one of them so I looked in the New Testament what about the church, what about the apostles he said that to his apostles and in the Great Commission what did he say to all Christians I will be with you always even to the end of the age So no matter what you're going through, God is with you. And he's doing something. And he's got a purpose in what he's doing. You may be perplexed, but don't despair. Don't give up. Keep going. Because God's doing something. And he can bring, he will bring good out of evil. Struck down is like... Uh, I'm thinking, you know, in his case, he's got in mind the time that he was stoned to death on his first missionary journey. They literally took him outside the city wall and about 100 guys with big old rocks just pummeled him until he was out. And then they went and looked at him and said, nobody can survive that. And they left him for dead. Anybody else had that happen? So again, whatever we're going through, it's not like what Paul went through. And yet he can say, I wasn't destroyed. I was struck down, left for dead, but I was not destroyed. God got me back up, got me going again. And as they live through this, look what happens in verse 10. The suffering, they're always carrying about in the body... The dying of Jesus. Now, that's a funny way to say that. But what he's saying is, you know, Jesus told his disciples, I will show you how, said to Paul, literally, I will show you how you must suffer for my for my sake. And he told his disciples in the upper room discourse, he said, you know, the world's going to be against you. And they're going to hate you. They hated me, so they'll hate you. That's what he means by the dying of Jesus. They're going through the same suffering and rejection that Jesus did and they're going to end up with the same type of martyr's death that he did. So the dying of Jesus, uh, but it's going to have a great effect. What's that? That the life of Jesus, the spiritual life of Jesus also may be manifested, revealed in our body. So this clay pot It's going to be able to do amazing things. We're going to have spiritual life. We're going to grow. And God's going to use us. We'll have a spiritual life. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death. Constantly uh, suffering through all this injustice. For a reason. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So he just said it in a different way. But... Basically, we're going through this so Jesus can be revealed and people will be saved. And so he says, death works in us. He's talking about the the apostles and the missionaries, but life in you. So he's saying the church, the the rough treatment that we went through ended up in your salvation because we brought you the gospel, Corinth, back in the second missionary journey. Verse 13, but having the same spirit of faith according to what is written. Why do they do that? What's, what, what is their motivation? What keeps them going? He quotes Psalm 116. David went through a terrible trial, and then he came out on the other end, and he said, I, went, I got through it because I believed, Lord, that you were with me, and so now I'm going to tell people about it. So he quotes that as being true in himself. I believe, therefore I spoke. So Paul believed this was true. He had experienced it himself. His life had been changed. And so he had to present the gospel. He couldn't not preach the gospel. Knowing that he who raised Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you. And so he's saying in the resurrection, now he's switching to focus on the resurrection, and he's saying our hope, our confidence is in what's going to happen in the future, which is the resurrection. Just as Jesus was resurrected, we also will be resurrected. And we look forward to that. We are living today based on that day. That's the way Paul thinks and recommends that the church think, should think. For Verse 15, For all things are for your sakes. You being the church, people that are believing and growing spiritually. He is suffering. He's putting up with these injustices, going through all this, so that they can be raised up. All things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving thanks giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God and that's the end that's the end game is that God be glorified who has the right to rule does the adversary of God have the right do we have the right to rule our own life and live independently that's the question And, of course, the answer that you find out and that we now believe is that all glory, it's all about God. It's not about me. All glory goes to God. And that's what happens through this whole process. God is going to be glorified, and that's a wonderful thing. Somebody asked me one time, well, why does God need to be glorified? I said, no, you got it backwards. We need God to be glorified. Because if it's us, if we're calling the shots, if it's all about our glory, we'll mess it up. (laughs) Like we messed everything else up. Talking about the human race. They've messed up the world. Because they're calling the shots and they're disobedient to God. Because it's not about God to them, it's about them. They've ruined the world. We need God to get the glory for things to be right. For there to be order. So that evil will be ended. Therefore, got kind of a conclusion here. The question then in verse 16 through 18 is, well, look, Paul, (laughs) if I got to go through all this stuff you're going through, I kind of need to know, give me a formula for not losing heart. You said you don't lose heart, you don't despair, you don't give up. How am I how do, how how do we do that? What's the secret? So verse 16, first of all, put your value on spiritual strength. Physical physical weakness, physical strength, you know, is temporary. It it and it's decaying. All these muscle men you know, in the NFL, you saw those guys play yesterday. Well, in about 30 or 40 years, they'll just be big, fat, ugly guys. You know, that's not going to last is what he's saying. I'm not mentioning any names. It's just not personal. I feel like it after they blew that game. <laughs> Talk about a paradox. Troy Aikman says, Whatever they do, they should remember the playoff game last year, where they gave Brett, they gave Aaron Rodgers all that time. They must run out the clock, and not let him have that chance to beat them at the end of the game again, like they did before. Next play, they pass it, which stops the clock. Next play, they immediately score, which gives him a minute 13, and everybody at home's going, no. Talk about a paradox. We're unhappy that we scored. No, don't do it. And the reason we were like that, because we could see the end from the beginning. And so Paul's saying, we know the end. Therefore, we don't lose heart. We know what's going to happen here. So, verse 17. You know, he's saying put your value system of the future over the present for momentary light affliction. Everything you are going through now is just momentary. It's going to pass. It's going to pass. I always tell people, uh, they say, I don't think so. I don't think there's any way around this thing, I'm, you know. And I say, think back uh, 20 years ago. Didn't you have problems then? Wasn't there something you were praying about? Well, yeah. Well, what was it? I don't remember. I so, said, well, apparently it got fixed. <laughs> for momentary light affliction is producing for us, it's having, an effect, having its effect of producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Again, looking forward to heaven, he's talking about the reward. You serve God now for a little while and put up with all this for a little while, and it means great glory, rewards in heaven forever. Pretty good contrast, right? And then thirdly, in verse 18, value the eternal over the temporal. And that's what he does. His perspective, his focus, he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, you know, the physical, temporal things, which you see before you now, but we look at the things which are not seen, the future glory, the promises of God, the resurrection are not seen yet, but we believe they're coming. For the things which are seen are temporal, they're temporary, they're passing away. 1 Corinthians 7 said, This world is passing away. Colossians 3, 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. 1 John 2, 17, The world is passing away, and all its lusts and desires are passing away with it. All that stuff we all want, it's going to be gone soon. But the eternal things of God will always be there. But the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. Principle there is, do not let the present blind you to the future. That's what happens. This stuff's right in front of us, and if we let it, we won't be able to see what's good that God has us for us because we'll be blinded by our circumstances and what's right in front of you. Let me close with uh, the C.S. Lewis quote which is so good. C.S. Lewis was talking about this very thing. And he says, if you read history, the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next world. So those whose real focus, like Paul, was on the next world, they did more for this present world than anybody else. Therefore, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. But you aim at earth, and you'll get neither. You'll get neither. Pretty good insight. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and how powerful these paradoxes are. And, and Lord, uh, I pray that like Paul, we would keep our future, our focus on the future and your promises, and in particular, the resurrection. And know, as Paul knows, that the glory to be revealed then is so much greater than what's going on now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.